and welcome back to Sounding It Out. I'm Julia van Heysten, the Head of Audiology at Signia. This is the final episode of a three-part mini-series about hearing aid fitting standards. If you missed the first two episodes, you can download them for free from your usual podcast provider. And remember to follow or subscribe so you don't miss our further episodes. If you found these conversations helpful, please tell colleagues, friends or family so as many people hear the wonderful advice you've heard. I'm pleased to say I'm still joined by American audiology guru, Dr. Gus Mueller. Thanks once again for your time. Hey, um, absolutely, and thanks for the invite. And the only thing I'm not liking about this is the word final. I, I sort of thought we could keep doing it all year long, but uh, maybe it isn't final, final. Who knows? Who knows? And uh, we can certainly do a, another series with you visiting hey, over to the UK. Sounds great. <laughs> and we are still joined by our live audience. Welcome back to you all. Now, Dr. Mueller, before I ask our first question, I'm just going to remind our audience that the hearing aid fitting standards that you've helped put together last year is divided into 15 standards. During the first deep dive, we focus on pre-fitting assessments. And during the second deep dive, we will discuss some of the remaining seven standards, which focuses on the hearing aid fitting onwards, mainly around verification. So we'll start with our first juicy question for today's episode, and it is around standard 10, which focuses on programming hearing aids using verification. Now, bearing in mind that verification is not performed as standard across all of our channels in the UK, channels meaning public sector, key accounts and independents, I'd like for us to revisit the importance of making verification a hearing aid fitting standard. It is within this context that I think we should focus on a few verification topics. The first is using a validated prescriptive method. The second is using verified ear canal output. And the third is optimizing the patient's residual dynamic range. So let's start with the first one, using a validated prescriptive method. I get this question often. Do we use NEL or do we use your proprietary prescription formula? Isn't NEL a little bit dated? For example, NEL 2 prescribes for 17 frequency channels, whereas some hearing aid instruments have got up to 48 or even 64 channels. What is your take on this part of the fitting standard about validated prescription method? I guess to start sort of at the beginning of, of how this validated, first, the key is validated, uh, and second of all, prescriptive method like the now. People have come up to me at times and said, I don't believe in all that prescriptive stuff. I have my own way of fitting hearing aids. If you think about it, to get it right, you really have to, you have to have good sound quality. Uh, you have to have correct loudness restoration. Uh, you have to have good intelligibility. You have to have hearing aid that the person's willing to wear. And you have to fit all those things together for every frequency and every input level. And how are you going to come up with that yourself? So first of all, it's great that we have people like the DSL people and the NOW, which has been around for over 40 years, who have really done all the work for us. They did the heavy lifting. So I like to just stay, step back and, and use what they have put together for us. Uh, as far as, as out of date, I don't see that at all. 
Indeed, when, when we went to NL1, that was when we started using wide dynamic range hearing aids, and NLLR only had target for one input level. So NALR was out of date because we needed targets for multiple input levels, which came to us in NL1. Ten years down the road, Harvey Dillon and his crew did a lot of work with NL1 and said, yes, there's some tweaking that needs to be done, although it really wasn't major. Gain was reduced by about 3 dB, I think, in the mid-frequencies and some other minor changes. So we have NL2, which has now been with us, uh, what, 4, 12, 13 years. The number of channels in the hearing aid to me uh, doesn't really matter uh, because, first of all, they're, they're all overlapping. So when you change one, you're really changing five or so. And we certainly have enough key frequencies that uh, getting a frequency in between there really isn't going to change things. Audiograms are pretty predictable and follow a pretty predictable pattern. So that isn't the issue. It's the issue of actually verifying that you have the validated thing. Now, you mentioned proprietary fittings. Well, there, there's the word validated right there. I, I would encourage you to go to every journal you can find that's peer-reviewed and find a manufacturer's algorithm that is published and has been peer-reviewed. So I wouldn't even put that in the category of validated, not my definition of validated. And there's, there's the issue as well when we talk about prescription formulas, especially you mentioned manufacturers, you know, do they want their hearing aids to sound nice? Is it about comfort? Or is it about speech intelligibility and in giving our patients sure. access to that speech yeah. that they need? Rumor has it you actually work for a manufacturer, I hear, <laughs> so I, I got to be really careful here what I say. Manufacturers have to sell hearing aids. They, they have to have a product that patients are willing to wear on day one. So you have to ask yourself, what do patients like? They like something that doesn't sound like a hearing aid. A lot of times, if you let the patient program it, they'll program back their own ear canal resonance that you took away when you put an ear mold in the ear. So that's zero gain, no loss, no gain. But I understand if, if manufacturers know, and they do, that the majority of people selling their product around the world, and keep in mind also these proprietary methods are used around the world. So if they know that around the world, 90% of the people do not do verification anyway, then I would say that they probably would come up with a method that sounds pleasant they would come up with a method that doesn't have feedback uh, because audiologists like to complain about products that have feedback, which means you're going to roll off the highs. You're going to reduce overall gain. And if I were doing a proprietary fitting, that's what I would do. And that actually is what's been done. The proprietary fittings across manufacturers are all pretty similar. They have reduced gain, particularly for soft sounds, and they all roll off gains compared to the nail mm -hmm. starting at around 2K mm -hmm. by a sizable amount, mm -hmm. by as much as Mike Valente's study, who uh, is, is indeed a peer-reviewed study of a couple of years ago, he found that in the high frequencies, the product he was using rolled off gain on average at 3K, 15 dB, and at 4K, 20 dB. Mm. There's some important stuff going on out there that I think our patients would like to hear. Absolutely. And if you think about the bulk of speech information in 3 and 4K, you know, that important mid-high frequency information, right. you'd certainly struggle with uh, understanding speech with 
15 to 20 dB less than you actually need yeah. with the prescription formula. Sure. You know, I mean, it, it's very, uh, SII uh, calculation has become very popular in the last uh, few years, and partly because the ProBike equipment does it for you. You look at a proprietary fit, and it's not uncommon at all that had you fitted to now, uh, you'd be getting an SII about 20% higher than you're getting from a proprietary fit. Audibility is an amazing thing. Mm. Well, I, I think we owe it to our patients to give them audibility. Mm, absolutely. And that actually leads really nicely into my next question, or the second part of that question, and that's around verified ear canal output. Now, um, I've seen click and fit outputs differ as much as, again, 15 to 20 dB in those really, really important speech information areas. Why do you think we have such a high percentage of unverified fittings? Huh. Yeah, I've, I've been talking about this for, well, we, we wrote our first guidelines uh, back in 1990. And in those guidelines, very clearly, it said that you would do probe microphone verification. So we're not talking about anything new. It never occurred to me that when probe mic equipment came out, everybody I hung around with was just delighted and said, finally, finally, we can figure out how all these darn hearing aids work. It never occurred to me that 95% of people would not be using, hmm. uh, would not be using this. I mean, we thought, well, of course you'd use it, but it didn't work that way. Hmm. It didn't work that way. I think that manufacturers... I think, do focus groups. And in their focus groups, one of the things they hear is, I'm in a rush. And they're hearing this from their, their, the people who they bring in. I'm busy. I need something that works fast and easy. And the manufacturer says, well, our proprietary fit is fast and easy. And the people say, well, the manufacturer says it's a good thing to do. Then it has to be okay. Which isn't really where, as audiologists, we should be getting our guidance. No offense to manufacturers, but their job is to build hearing aids. Our job is to fit hearing aids. I have never tried to build a hearing aid in my life, and it would be a piece of crap if I did. I stick to what I do. Manufacturers, they do something else. They build very, very good hearing aids. And that makes a great partnership if we stay in our own lane, is the way I see it. So the final part of the question then is about optimizing the patient's residual dynamic range. And most manufacturer software will predict the, the MPO based on, on averages. We talked earlier about ULLs and building that into our pre-assessments. Um, and I also know that you did some research last year on what happens when you allow the manufacturer to pick the, the MPO. Can you provide us a summary of the findings of this research? Yeah, well, there's two things. And, and this was a study done with some people at the University of, of Iowa, Dr. Wu and uh, Dr. Stangle. We looked at the premier hearing aids, uh, the six main companies, and we put the same audiogram into all of them and looked at what we would get as, uh, first of all, we did measures to see what we would get as the uh, maximum output. And with the exception of one company that did pretty well, most of the companies, when programmed to there now, the output was about 20, 25 dB below what we would predict as the person's LDL based on the now prediction, which is in the now software, if you get the original now software. So that's problem number one. Problem number two, then, we put in this uh, audiogram that was a typical audiogram going from uh, 25 in the lows down to 70 in the highs, what most of we would consider easy to fit, typical audiogram. Uh, we put that in, had picked the manufacturers now, and again, then went in to see where the manufacturer set 
the output, okay? Uh, because you just go to the AGCO knee points and you can see where the output is set. And most manufacturers somewhere in the fitting software just has as on a little tab that you can read the numbers. What we found is, well, first of all, we said we wanted to now fit. So this should be pretty easy, you would think. Uh, for that particular patient, the now, what the now said in a 2cc coupler, it should be 98 to 102, low frequencies to high frequency, 98 to 102. Well, if you're fitting, that's pretty easy, you would think, to program, right? We had some falling 10 to 15 D below the now, and we had some 10 dB over the now from, from if we looked at the lowest and the highest among manufacturers, the difference was 25 dB. Okay? That means a given patient's MPO could be set different by 25 dB, just depending on what manufacturer you picked. And the sad thing is, I'm afraid a lot of people don't even know that. You know, it's something that just doesn't get a lot of attention, which goes back to podcast number two, mm -hmm. that why not do LDLs and set the MPO yourself, mm -hmm. you know, and then you don't have to rely on somebody else to do it. I think considering the evidence that you've just shared with us, it actually makes that standard a standard. Yes. Well, <laughs> it makes it essential. And that's why it's one of the standards. That's why it's there. Yes, that's why it's absolutely. there. Yeah. So the, the next question is around another um, topic of interest at the moment, and that is auto-REMS or auto-REMFITA or, or however the manufacturers mm -hmm. call it. So here we go. There's a curveball here. During uh -oh. COVID, <laughs> a few hospital departments here in the UK incorporated remote in situ gram. So at this was when you do a hearing test with the hearing aids in situ as a second best option to doing REMS. In the remote fitting pathways, this is, this is kind of what they resorted to is in Citigram. Now, I know you've written a couple of papers about REMS versus auto-REMS recently. Bringing then in Citigram into that conversation, how do you think it compares to do something like that with a, with a hearing test with the hearing aids in C2 versus auto-REMS versus your manual REMS? Okay, two different things. So let's take the in Citigram first which Widex uh, put that out many years ago and wrote about it, and a few Widex, Widex customers picked it up. It, it isn't commonly done, but that doesn't mean it isn't good. It is, yeah, if, you, if for some reason you cannot do probe mic verification, uh, you then could do this, and in most cases, you would get a better fit than not doing anything. It does account for the RECD, which is... If the only difference, if the reason that the fits aren't good was because of variance from person to person, then in C2 fits would, would be okay. The problem is that isn't the reason that fits are so bad. The fits are so bad is that the manufacturer's NAL target is not the real NAL target. Well, your in situ gram isn't going to help you there at all because you're still going to plug in those numbers and you're going to get a fit from the software that is not really the now. But on the fitting screen, I can assure you it's going to be a beautiful fit. And people believe it. They look at that cartoon and think that that's what's going on in the real ear when it isn't. And there's tons of data to show that if you take various manufacturers and fit to their now, you get roll off in the highs just like you get with proprietary fits for the very same reasons that you get that. So that's where a C2 fit's not going to help you at all because you're still using the wrong targets. Now, auto rem fit is, is really a, a different thing, and auto rem fit is to increase efficiency. So for our listeners who, who aren't familiar with this, I 
I use the term auto rem fit because just about every manufacturer has their own term for it, auto fit and rem fit and so on. So I tried to put together a term that no manufacturer was using. And Todd Ricketts and I wrote an article on this about four years ago. The, the notion with this is that the probe mic equipment and the fitting software talk to each other. And they one of them is the boss, and one of them tells the other one what to do and uses the measurements from the others to make corrections. And once you do some initial setup and calibration, you can pretty much sit back, uh, watch the screen, and watch the fitting uh, automatically do its best job of adjusting to target. Every manufacturer has an article that's been published, most all of them in hearing review, about how good their auto rim fit procedure is. Most There are five different probe mic pieces of equipment that are linked to different companies. Not all are linked to all companies. So you'd sort of have to check with your probe mic manufacturer and your hearing aid manufacturer uh, to make sure that they have a partnership going. And so... Once that's been established, then what is the advantage? Well, number one, it's going to be faster, particularly if you're not experienced at programming hearing aids. It's going to be faster. And for average speech, it probably will be as good as what would be obtained by an experienced uh, clinician. Uh, we just did a, a study, I, uh, John Pumford and I, who's an audiologist with the equipment Verifit, and uh, we, we did a study actually with Signia Hearing Aids about that, and we found that fit to target on average was within 2 dB for average. This is good. Okay. That's very good. Uh, and if, if anybody out there doing fittings know that you got to work pretty hard to get within 2 dB across all the frequencies. Okay. So that's good. And you can do it bilaterally, which is good. Uh, so in the studies, they've actually looked at savings times. It's about three minutes per ear for an experienced fitter. That's about the time that you would save. You know, how important is that? Well, it could be that's six minutes, you know, for two ears. Uh, if, if your clinic is so pressed that six minutes is that important, uh, I might look for a new job. But uh, there are some clinics that people are heavily pressured to get that fitting done. And that's one of the reasons that people have been promoting auto rim fit, mm-hmm. particularly the, the companies that sell pro mic equipment, right? Well, wh- how, could it, how could this be bad or what's the downside? There's a couple issues to consider. Issue number one is some of the systems only fit to an average input, uh, which means that, and the biggest mistake you're going to find there, is that soft targets are off by 5 to 10 dB. So if you think this through, you've just gone through this whole auto rem fit, and you, you got a good fit to average. Now you run a 55 dB curve, and you see you're off by 8 dB. Well, you have to fix that. How do you fix gain for soft? You have to turn up overall gain. It's not a compression thing, right? Well, what happens to 65 once you turn up overall gain? You now just blew away that fit to target. You had 65, and you're fitting the whole hearing aid over again. So auto rem fit was to absolutely no help in that case, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Unless you don't care about soft and you're making a huge mistake. 
Uh, there's been research that showed that if you have to get one level right, the most important one to get right is the input for soft sounds. And I'm talking either a 50 or 55 dB SPL input. The second problem we have is, I said earlier, that the manufacturers now, unfortunately, unless something's been changed in the last six months or so, most manufacturers now, if not all manufacturers now, is not the true now. Okay? Now, if the software is the boss telling the probe mic system what to do, the hearing aid will be auto-rem fit, but not really, because it's fit to the wrong targets. So you did a very fancy auto-fit to the wrong targets. Now, one probe mic company in particular, Verifit, uh, AudioScan Verifit, which probably is not that popular here. It's very popular in the U.S. Verifit won't make an agreement with a company unless you use the Verifit targets, which are the true now targets. Mm. The, the probe mic system tells the software what to do, mm -hmm. not the other way around. Okay, mm. Huge difference, huge difference, and, and that's the way it should be. So um, it seems to me that autorims um, have got great potential for us in clinics, especially mm -hmm. when you think you could save some time. You know, we've talked a lot about some of the pre-assessment that happens before the fitting. We've talked about verification. We've talked about ULLs. All of those things do take time. So if in the future we can create even just two or three sure. minutes for another additional test, that makes sense. However, we do need to do a little bit more work with autorims for that to be you know, uh, the standard that we need sure. it to be. What, what I, I would suggest for any clinician is just do a cross-check. Go ahead and do, do your auto REM fit, and then once it's over, I mean, you wouldn't do this with every patient, but you just, when you first start doing it, and then simply do a cross-check and say, okay, now I'm going to fit the, the way I normally would fit. And if this system really works, I should be getting a very close match to target using my approach, mm -hmm. uh, the way I fit hearing aids. Mm. That's a nice way to check it out. Absolutely. Give yourself the confidence that the autism exactly. that you're doing is yep. actually yep. spot on. That's good advice for our listeners too. So standard 11 then, um, which is our fi final question for today, is about individualization of the hearing aid gain and output with minor deviations in gain and output where necessary. So here we are treading on eggshells a little bit again. Can you define or are you able to define what minor deviations mean to our audience? Yeah, that, that's an excellent question on your part because that was the toughest uh, two sentences to write in the entire standard. Uh, and and because it's sort of crazy, you say, you have to do this and you have to do this and you have to do this, but you know, just maybe you don't have to. Well, the, the, the notion was that by a couple people strongly advocated it, the clinicians primarily in our in our team, and, and it's re realistic. Uh, so let's start first, what is a fit to target, okay? So if you go back to all the data that was collected by the Harvey Dullins crew, um, they, they show average hearing loss for average use gain for different uh, hearing losses. And they modeled NL2 somewhat after what was average use gain for different inputs and, and so on. And it's a range, of course it's a range. And what we see in there that they looked at, I think plus or minus three, plus or minus five, you're going to get in around 60% of the people. That that's 
is right for them. And so when we fit hearing aids today, people talk about target, but target isn't like a dot on the screen. Target is a 10 dB range, 5 dB above and 5 dB below. And if that's fine, it's a target. It's like playing football or soccer or whatever. You don't have to get it right in the middle of the goalpost. You know, as long as you get it in there, you're good enough. And that's the way this is. It's a range. But yes, you would expect just because of the the size of the standard deviations, there will be a patient whose maximum listening level, their preferred listening level, might be 7 dB below target. Well, are you going to force them to be fit to target? Or are you going to maybe start them out 7 dB below, maybe put in some auto acclimatization, maybe bring them back in two weeks and see if you could change their preferred listening level, or maybe they spend the rest of their life slightly below. So this is, I think we did use the word minor in Mm -hmm. the actual term. Mm -hmm. So this means that it's okay uh, to tweak things a little bit just because we need... We need people wearing their hearing aids. Mm -hmm. So you can't be so rigid that you give them a fitting uh, that they're not going to wear. I mean, none of us want that. Mm -hmm. So that's why that was put in there. It's sort of like there's a little wiggle room. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't call it an eggshell, but just wiggle room. Mm -hmm. And I think um, just listening from what you said there, when we refer to this particular standard, I like the fact that you said we manage expectations. So at the end of the day, we can tell our patients, where we want to end is up here. So for today, because we want you to get used to your hearing aids and we want you to have the hearing aids on your ears, we'll, we'll bring you down yeah. a little bit, but let's work together within the next weeks, sure. months maybe, because this is ideally where we need to end because this is where you will get the most benefit. Yeah. And as you say, sometimes it might happen that you never get there, but we'd rather have our patients yeah. wear their hearing aids. And, and as you well know, the, the whole patient-centered thing is becoming more and more uh, required uh, and more and more implemented. And, you know, you want the patient to be happy. The, the, the other side of it, of course, is that I think we all know that the patient isn't maybe really the best judge of what's best for them. And this is then when you run into problems and why where there's an art along with the science and the art is to manage expectations as you just said and and hopefully you end at the right place uh, again providing audibility is just so keen mm-hmm. uh, that that you just you, you can't ignore that mm-hmm. um, and I guess validation um, whatever form you you use uh, to to do validation whether that is your aided testing where you demonstrate to your patients the difference that that 7db potentially could Mm -hmm. make to to hearing those words or identifying them or maybe you mentioned the sii earlier on maybe that's something that you could work with your patients just to demonstrate that's the difference that we're talking about is that you know what's more important to you that comfort or hearing yeah. Um, when you struggle. And remember, we, as we discussed uh, way back in podcast number one, um, that you, have, you already have these pre-fitting tests such as the AFAB. Mm-hmm. Now, the AFAB, uh, we did it unaided because we collected the case history. Now we can do it aided and see how are these people doing in quiet and background noise. And by the way, there's research evidence to show uh, comparing a now fitting to a proprietary fitting that there's a significant more improvement on the AFAB. So it it isn't just what 
somebody in a university sat down and thought maybe would work and let's stick these little probes in the ears and measure it, there, there's there data that show that when you do it that way and people go out in the real world, they will have more benefit and satisfaction. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, again, you can put all that together as a package, uh, why it all then becomes the fitting sort of from A to Z. We've come to the end of our conversation here, and I can see that we've got somebody in our audience that would like a question. So over to you. Okay, so my name's Michelle Booth, and I'm Public Account Manager for Signia, but previously an NHS audiologist. I did find your comment regarding the use of the proprietary fitting against NAL and DSL quite interesting, because as an NHS audiologist in practice, we would always use the NAL or the DSL and use it with probe right measurements and find it quite strange that that perhaps doesn't happen as a routine. So what what would you what would you say about that? Good question and just to clarify what I had said before, the difference between using the the now algorithm meaning you simply click on the button and assume you got lucky versus using it and verifying with probe mic measures are really two very different things and and good for you because it sounds like you're doing the right way you know i can't speak for how things happen in various countries i can only speak uh, for what what i know which is what happens in the us and that is unfortunately probably no more than 70 uh, well, no more than 30% of audiologists actually verify to either the now, well, you can't really verify to a proprietary fitting because there are no targets on the machine. I also know from uh, data that has been collected that in the U.S., probably 70% of the audiologists use proprietary fittings simply because somebody from their favorite manufacturer has visited them and said, this is what works the best. Believe me, I know uh, your patients will be happier. And it's true. The patient actually might be happier because it doesn't sound like a hearing aid. Uh, but the problem is it, it usually is not is not a very good fitting. So this is why I was sort of emphasizing the difference between punching the button and hoping you get lucky versus actually sitting down and making sure that that algorithm that you want is really happening at the real ear. And, and the fact that you and your colleagues are doing that would put you in the top 30% in the U.S., maybe the top 10%, I don't know. And I, I, have to, I can't resist adding one more thing. And that is the weird thing is we have this Costco, okay? It's in a warehouse, for goodness sakes, they, they buy 12% of all hearing aids sold in the U.S. Costco does probe mic verification in a warehouse. So if you can do it in a warehouse, I would hope the heck you could do it in an office or a clinic. Uh, amen. <laughs> <laughs> Great question. And I think that fits quite nicely with the, the sort of idea around standards and guidelines, because our guidelines that we follow in the NHS would suggest that probe right measurement is done on every patient. But because we don't have a standard, then possibly those guidelines aren't followed in all, all clinics. Right. And that, that's a, it's a slippery slope because if you really have a standard, then the standard should have some teeth. And, and what's the penalty for not following the standard? Usually none. There is no penalty. 
which is too bad. I think that's the reason that most national organizations call it guidelines and not standard, because if they call that a standard, then what are you going to do to your, your member who isn't following the standard? Is, do you kick that person out of your organization? Probably not, because uh, they'd get an attorney. And, and so anyway, it's, um, it's complicated, but let your heart be your guide is what I say. No, thank you. That's uh, an interesting insight. Thank you very much. So that actually wraps it up nicely. So with that, I would like to thank you so much for your insightful discussion with us today during our third and final episode. Today, we focus mostly on verification, which clearly is an important focus within the standard. Um, Thank you so much for joining us uh, for the first series with Dr. Gus Muller as our guest speaker. We hope you have found this insightful and that you will reflect on your own practice accordingly. If you have any thoughts on the topics of these episodes, we'd love to hear from you and uh, you can look for the contact details on the episode page. You'll find links to Signia's webpage as well as links to more information on Dr. Gus Mueller. And remember, if you found these conversations helpful, please share them with your colleagues and with your friends so as many people as possible can hear Dr. Mueller's expertise. Well, thank you. And remember, it doesn't necessarily have to be the final, final. I love that. All right. 